Blog Talk Radio. Knox and David German with Punching Left, and we have a special guest on for our 20th episode. I never thought we'd get here, David, but we have uh, Dr. Bill Warner on with us, which is really, really cool. Uh, How are you doing, Dr. Warner? I'm doing well, and since we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, I'm going to do even better. (laughs) That's fantastic. Um, So, so you are involved in a lot of things. You've, you've written books. Of course, you lots of videos on YouTube. What are, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now, uh, any websites or anything that you have out there that you'd like the audience to know about? Well, I'm finishing up a book called Civilizational War, which is a summation of my entire career in this business, which started out in 2001 after 9-11. So that's my latest thing. Uh, of course, I stay busy with the general answering phone calls, writing to people. I'm a 77-year-old I'm a man who works a uh, 12-hour day, six and a half days a week with regards to political Islam, so I try to stay busy. Well, I hope that when I'm 77 years old, I can do half that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't figure out if it's so, killing me or keeping me alive, but I kind of think it's keeping me alive because when I get up in the morning, <laughs> it's another chance to do battle. You sound like you're ready for it, too. Well, you have to. If a, if a warrior doesn't have his morale, he doesn't have any reason to get out of bed in the morning. I, I understood. Understood. So, I, you know, one of the things that I think is amazing, uh, some of the research you've done, uh, you put a video out that I watched, and I, I've watched it several times now. I, I, I just absolutely astonishing. You know, the one of why, are, uh, why are they or why are we afraid? Right. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about the amount of research that went into that project and, and sort of your feelings on, on what, what you found? And did you expect to find out, you know, find that type of information? Well, I've always had a long interest in the Middle Ages. I'm not sure why. I just always had an inherent interest in it. 
But there was always part of the story that didn't make any sense, and that was the coming of what they called the Dark Ages. Because here we have a people, Europeans, who at one point, a century or so before, were the high point of human civilization, the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. And then all of a sudden they're uh, living in caves and eating dirt. That's a <laughs> statement to make, but it's like, wait a minute, what happened? Why the extreme poverty? I mean, I, mean, I can understand nations falling, but we, this didn't fall. It was a complete collapse. So there was a book that came out, uh, and I'm not sure who directed my attention to it, but it was a 1,200-page book uh, from a Harvard professor, and it was a new and different look at the Mediterranean economy. That was the title of it, I think, the rise, and, the rise of the European economy, or the Mediterranean economy, maybe. And anyway, I was reading and I was fascinated that we could see the tracking of the Dark Ages in Europe by how many ships were on the bottom of the ocean. In those days, sailing ships were the main, tied the entire uh, Mediterranean world together. It was very cheap and easy to travel. So there was always a certain loss. And so it, let's say that, making this number up, that 3% of all ships were lost when they sailed. So if you're digging around, if you're scanning the bottom of the Mediterranean, you get an idea of fragments of how much trade there was. So if there's very few ships on the bottom, that means there was very little trade. And so this was very intriguing to me because the pot, all of a sudden I thought, how does this tie into the poverty of the so-called Dark Ages? And I began to look at it. And in the back of this book, there was a, a, a certain kind of ar archaeology, if you will, which is many of the ancient documents had been translated. And as I was reading these documents, I suddenly realized that these were battles that Islam fought against Europe. And then I went, wait a minute. How come in the hearing of the Dark Ages, no one ever talks about the effect of Islam? It's like it's an Islam-free examination. So anyway, I became fascinated. Long story made short, I did a massive amount of work and found, made a database of some 548 battles that Islam fought against this, uh, what I call the classical civilization, which is Persia, Hindustan, and Europe, uh, over a period of 1,200 years. So then I faced a problem. 548 battles, how do you convey that information? And then I thought, wait a minute. So I created something I called a dynamic battle map so that we could see and fast forward. I compressed 1,200 years of warfare into two minutes. And when people look at that, I mean, it's amazing. You can just see history unfold, and all of a sudden you understand why the so-called Dark Ages in Europe was because there was no trade. If you cut off all the trade to Nashville, Tennessee, Let's say you cut off 90% of the airline, truck, car trade. Nashville would become completely impoverished. And so all of a sudden, this was a new look at, look at the Dark Ages, which had a cause. The cause was militant Islam. So that's, that, anyway, that was some of that work. And it was very satisfying to do, by the way, because it answered a lifelong question. What explains the extreme poverty of the Dark Ages? It was Islam. Well, and, you know, as I said, that was watching that is absolutely astonishing i mean it's not something you necessarily expect um well, how do you think for instance something like the the christian crusades uh later on how, how do you think that compares with the this this what appears to be a massive fatwa you know into the west from from the middle east how do you let, let's tell you what let's first tackle something which we'll call the pre-crusades this is my coinage there that is, the crusade started in the 11th century, but there was already a crusade against the Islam, which was in Spain. Spain inv was invaded by Islam in the year 711, and they spent seven centuries fighting against Islam in order to drive Islam out of Spain. 
So this was a crusade of its sort. The Reconquista could be viewed as the prototype of Christian crusades. So, but why would the why would the Christians in Europe even go on crusades? Well, this had to do with the fact that they looked at the Middle East. I have to I sometimes have to remind my listeners that the Middle East used to be Christian. Damascus was a Christian intellectual center. Uh, Turkey was Christian. Uh, Syria was Christian. North Africa was Christian. Egypt was Christian. Iraq was Christian. Uh, half of Persia was Christian. So all of a sudden, these Christians were now oppressed by Islam. And so the oppression got to the point where there was recognizing that, first off, if you were in Rome, you could see Islam was at war with Christianity on, in Spain, and they were now pressing up through Turkey. So Rome saw itself in the middle of a pincer movement of arms, and they didn't have to read the paper to know what it meant when Islam invaded. So the first crusade was a response to the brutality of Islamic occupation of the what had been previously Christian lands. Okay. So that's... Uh, and, and when you compare, for instance, you said over 500 battles that were fought... Uh, by Islam against uh, Christianity, how how many battles would you? I mean, how does that compare to how many battles were initiated by the the Christians side of things <laughs> in the Crusades? Well, you know, I did a little subset of that video you saw, which was comparing the Crusades to Islamic battles, and I ran the same time period in which we could see. To make a long story short, there were fourteen offensive battles in which the Christians attacked the Muslims in the Middle East. Now, there were other battles, but they were ones in which the Christians were attacked by the Muslims. Let's go back and remember this. The Middle East used to be Christian. I, I keep having to say this because you'd be amazed the number of people who don't understand this. They just sort of assumed that the Middle East was always Islamic. So that, that, that was the, the comparison is, let's take, a, take another comparison. Who died today in the world because of the Crusades? No one. Who died today because of Islamic jihad somewhere in the world? I haven't looked it up, but I'll guarantee you $1,000 that someone did. That is, the Crusades have been over for centuries, and yet, and they were defensive in nature. I view the entire Crusade business as a defensive warfare. So, so we have the fact that the Crusades is now gone, and the jihad continues today. And I say this with somewhat sadness, because I think it is... The churches of both Europe and the United States have never recognized that there is a battle against Christianity by Islam, and instead the churches want to attend interfaith gatherings and proclaim themselves to be members of the family of Abraham instead of attending to the business of dealing with the persecuted church. The largest persecuted group of people in the world today are Christians, and yet some out of the church, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and in Nashville, Tennessee, the churches don't even talk about this. So I love to talk about the Crusades because it was at least one time in which something was done by the church. Now, we need to go ahead and say there were some things that were done also that were done in the wrong way. So I'm not an apologist for the Crusades, but I do recognize the need for dealing with brutality with defensive force. Okay. And that, that makes makes a lot of sense to me, too. I mean, you, at some point you have to do something to stem the that tide. And, you know, uh, a lot of the, the Islamic pushes in, into the West is, you know, they were all – these imams and clerics, they continue to even now to issue uh, fatwa after fatwa saying, you know, attack, attack, attack. And it's on multiple fronts and in multiple, you know, both socially, culturally, economic, they're, they're from every direction. Um, 
Muhammad was the greatest warrior who ever lived. He created a new form of warfare, civilizational warfare. Caesar, Napoleon, Alexander the Great used kinetic weapons. But Muhammad was able to go beyond kinetic weapons like the sword. And we see in America today and in Europe that even food is used as a weapon in civilizational war, the halal food business. So mm. the, a piece of clothing like the, the hijab is considered a, wep- a weapon, if you will, in struggling against the uh, kafir, the non-Muslim world. So anything that deals with, let's get this straight, Islam and our civilization have nothing in common. uh, They appear to be the same, but they're not. And so we need to see that Muhammad created a new form of warfare. There are four kinds of jihad, jihad of the sword, jihad of speech, jihad of writing, and jihad of money. The least harmful of these is jihad of the sword. Let me give you an example of this form of jihad that is more dangerous than the sword. In Tennessee, every seventh grader who goes to public school learns that Islam, through the textbooks, was the, golden, was the high point of civilization, that it is the best treatment of women under Islam, and that Islam protects Christians and Jews. Now, these are all half-truths at the best. But this is a more effective form of warfare than using the sword and killing people or car bombs or anything else. So civilizational war using money, speech, and writing is far more dangerous to our civilization than is the use of the sword or kinetic warfare. Nah, I definitely agree. In some cases, you you completely cut off the idea. There's no need to even go to uh, actual violent, physical violence because you've defeated your enemy before you get to it. Um, Islam is the most so, brilliant form of warfare that, that has ever been invented. Uh, I can see it. And so, uh, David, do you have any questions that you would like to pose to Dr. Warner? Um, what does the word um, jihad mean? It does not mean holy war, he said in a loud voice. It means struggle, effort. And that's what it means. Jihad is not a dirty word. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I teach people is we need to start using the right words. To have the right to think of the right concepts, you need the right words. And what we need to do is this is not we do not have a problem with terrorism, we have a problem with jihad. We do not have a problem with terrorists, we have a problem with jihadis. This is a shift of emphasis, and it lets you see that the Muslim Brotherhood lobbyist in Washington, DC with a two thousand dollar suit on is also a jihadist, even though he does not have a he doesn't have a bomb that he's gonna throw at you. So the Muslim Brotherhood's form of warfare against this nation is far more effective than the number of people killed. I don't want to minimize the suffering of those who are killed in jihad, but we lose more people. I bet you, I'm making this statistic up. I bet you we lose more people because of driving while texting than we do with kinetic jihad here in America. Now, perhaps that's a little extreme, but I do know we lose more to drunk drivers than we do to jihad. So even though there's physical suffering and human suffering in jihad of the sword, such as 9-11 or some other jihad attack, the damage to the civilization is far more done by those who are trying to make some compromise with Sharia. And I think that that's where we start to really see a breakdown, because in some of the communities uh, in Europe, and in some cases you see calls for it here, you, you see uh, Muslim communities uh, – uh, start to try to apply Sharia, and I think that that 
what is interesting about it is that uh, it, if you talk to them, they, they will try to obfuscate the whole the whole conversation. They will try to make it look as though you know they don't really want Sharia. But if you look at a lot of the polls that are out there, you find that it's astounding how many Muslims actually do want Sharia law in their community in Western countries. Let's divide Would Sharia you, law. Have you seen that? Oh yes. I'm looking up. I have a bookshelf above uh, my computer where I'm talking. I see the Reliance of the Traveler, which is a classical handbook of Sharia law. We need to understand that there's two parts to Sharia law. When Muslims, if you have a Muslim, if there were another Muslim on the show right now, he'd be jumping. Oh no, no! You need to understand, Sharia is just our form of uh, sacred law. It's just like the canon law of the, the Catholics, and like the halal, like the. Uh, kosher laws of the, Islam, of the Jews. Halakha is the word I'm searching for. But we see here that that statement is only about a third true because if you look at the alliance of the traveler and you count what it devotes to religion, which is the five pillars of Islam, only a third of it is devoted to what we would call religious law. The rest of it is devoted to concepts which can harm us. For instance, let me give you an example. Part of it is, this is a simple example, the Sharia text, Reliance of the Traveler, lays out the proper way to beat your wife. That's astounding. And that's a political action because I say that women who move to America should be protected by our laws. And yet what's happening in our world is that Islam is applying its own laws, the Sharia laws, including those of family. We find in Europe that they're accepting multiple wives. After all, they, if that's what they need, then that's what they should get. So the Sharia is beginning to affect our laws, our textbooks, the way we do business, and uh, so the, the Sharia is sacred law from the Muslim standpoint. And any Muslim who doesn't want Sharia law is not a very good Muslim because Sharia law is Allah's law, whereas our constitution is based on man-made law. Now, our constitution says, and I believe it's Article 6, that the constitution is the supreme law of the land. Muslims say, uh, not so fast, kids. The supreme law of all the world is Sharia. And one day it will become the supreme law of America. And this brings up interesting points. If a Muslim is supposed to give allegiance to a law before a man, then what is a police officer doing being a Muslim? And for that matter, why should our military use Muslims as fighters? Because they're supposed to fight to defend the Constitution. But if they have a higher oath, which is their sacred oath to Allah, that they would live as a Muslim, then they really have to prefer the Sharia over our constitutional law. Now, this is an extreme statement, but I, I'll stand behind it. I, I don't see, honestly, I mean, a lot of the things that I've read, um, some of the videos that you've done that I've watched, and uh, different different uh, articles and so on that I've read and so forth, they, they they seem to, they don't, they definitely do not contradict what you're saying, and a lot of them reinforce what you're saying. So, and I and I think it's, it's sort of a, a crazy, a crazy thing because in a lot of the Western European countries, uh, they're they're happy to stand back and allow them to do these things. We seem to have lost our our will as a civilization. Um, we we I ha- we have two enemies in the United States and Europe. The first enemy is the far enemy, which is Islam. Then we have a near enemy, which is the apologist for Islam and the leftist. I can tell you that in my personal life. The left harms me far more than do Muslims, but they work as a unit because the left wants to bring down our civilization in order to replace it with some sort of socialist utopia. 
and the Muslims want to bring down our civilization in order to bring about pure Sharia. Now, the left and the apologists for Islam look at each look at the Muslims and go, yeah, you and me, baby, we'll take them down. What they don't understand is, is that the leftists are, are idealists, and let me give them a historical example. The Tudor party was the part was the people that brought Khomeini to power in Persia. They were communists, the Tudor party was. Five days after Khomeini assumed power in Persia, Iran, the current name, he issued death warrants for every single Tudor party leader. So the left may think that they can be buddies with the Muslims to help bring down our civilization and replace it with utopia, but they will discover if that does happen that bad things will happen to them. They're useful as long as they're useful, and when they're not, they're disposed of. And let me repeat this. We have two enemies, the near enemy, which are the apologists and the left, and the far enemy is Islam. Let me give you, go back to the textbooks. Who actually changed the textbooks? Did the Muslims change the textbooks? No. The textbook company changed the textbooks. Now, it turns out if you dig through their ownership, you'll discover that Muslims own some of their, some of their stock. But the actual harm was done by apologists for Islam, not the Muslims themselves. So the apologists for Islam become the cat's paw for Muslims, which is very, very clever. They let them do the work for them. So it's kind of it's, – it's, it's sort of – uh, in a lot of ways, stealthy, sort of insidious. Yes, very clever. And then let me tell you something. Mm. If you stay in my business very long, two things will happen after a few years. You will learn to admire your enemies and despise your own. Islam is not the problem ah. and the left is not the problem. We are the problem. We are too kind. We are too generous. We are too naive is the better word for it. We need to toughen up some. There's a war going on. And the reason we're losing that war is we're being too nice and not tending to what is our, our first order of business should be survival. And yet our survival is being threatened. And we're going, well, I don't want to be thought. Here's what happens if you talk like I talk. You'll be called a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe. So I'm called a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe. That's all one word, by the way. And yet <laughs> it doesn't break any bones. The people who call me these names don't know me. So... We are the problem. We're the problem because we're using the language of losers. Let me give you an example of the language of losers. Oh, Sweden is toast. France is gone. Man, Europe is going to disappear. It's all going to become Sharia. That's loser talk. Warrior talk is whatever it takes to win, we will do to win. And the point where we're losing, we will examine why we're losing. And if we need to do, we'll change the way we're fighting. Winners have an attitude, and we have the attitude of a loser. So we're the problem. Okay. Islam is not the problem and the left is not the problem. Does that make sense? It does. Um, it does. It makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Dr. Warner, we have a, a longtime a follower of yours who actually is a host for uh, the Scottish uh, Liberty podcast, I believe. His name is Anthony uh, Samaroff. And he, wanted, he had a question he wanted to ask you real sure. quick. He, he just called into the show. Go ahead, uh, Anthony. Hi, Bill. A real pleasure to speak to you. Before I was introduced with, to your work, I had the sort of lefty view that the reason why 9-11 happened and so forth was because of our interventions in the Middle East. And um, you, you 
enlighten me as to some of the historical conditions. So um, I'm thankful to you for that. I happen to be one of these people who, when exposed to new information, actually has the capacity to change my mind. And <laughs> Wonderful, a human quality. Yeah, I know. And I've, been, I've been shocked and appalled at how rare that is. You know, I used to be a leftist on economics, and I was interest, uh, introduced to... Um, you know, the arguments in favor of free markets, and I became um, a libertarian-minded person. And then, um, but I still, I wonder to what degree you think, although they may be mistaken in what they deny the left in terms of the reality of the doctrines of political Islam, what, to what degree is there some truth that we have um, exacerbate the situation, for example, taking democratically elected leaders out of power uh, um, in Iran or, say, um, taking out Saddam Hussein, which uh, led to ISIS and um, more militant groups moving in and taking over in Iraq and Afghanistan, not to mention us empowering radical Islam when we intervened in Kosovo and um, being allies with Saudi Arabia who open up these Wahhabi schools all over the Middle East. Could you speak to what extent you think we're committing suicide rather than uh, being murdered? Let me say that you're generally correct. If you want me to defend our foreign policy, you're talking to the wrong person. First off, let me share something with you. Most people consume African conservative. I used to be a member of the ACLU. I was part of civil rights. I was a hippie living in a commune. People do not understand who I am. Okay, let's start with that. Our wars, our kinetic wars that we have fought against Islam are stupid because they do not recognize who the enemy is. Our military leaders do what they're told by the civilian leaders, and one of the things the civilian leaders demand is is they not know anything about political Islam and the doctrine of jihad. So as a consequence, we're fighting all the wrong kind of wars for all the wrong kind of reasons. And we get blowback like mass migration from the Middle East. We're the cause of it because we fought the wrong kind of war. I don't have any objection to kinetic war, but we're using it far too easily and far too wrongly. We need to see that this is a civilizational struggle, but we need to recognize the true nature of our enemy and that not, and we're, we're doing the wrong. I agree with basically what you've said. Okay. War in Iraq was a disaster. It was unnecessary. And as I say, I do not object to war, but it needs to be fought under with support of the nation. That's one of the things that I saw in Vietnam was that, we fought a war in which the, the Congress and, the, and could do it and the president could do it, but the nation was not behind it. Going to war is serious business. But the nature of our war is that first you need to know the enemy, and then you know, need to know who we are. We have not asked the very simple question, who is the enemy? And so as a result, we fight wars in a very dumb kind of way. So I hope it didn't disappoint you, but I largely agree with you. Okay, that's not a disappointment at all. What do you think in terms of policy should have been the correct response to event like 9-11? And, and uh, Dr. Dr. Warner, I just wanted to let you guys know we're, we're getting short on time. So after this question, I'd like to take a question from somebody else for a second. But go ahead, Dr. Warner. Okay. We need to study Islam. We need to study Islam in a fair and objective way. We need to study the history of Islam. We need to study the doctrine of Islam. I don't know of anywhere in the United States where you can go to a college or a university and actually study the doctrine of Islam. You, and let me, let me give you even an example. Here in Nashville, Tennessee, we have Lipscomb University, which is a Christian school. 
They do not teach anything about the persecuted church and the history of the persecution. So we need to educate ourselves as to who we're dealing with. We find that we're... What I want to do is to educate people as to what the doctrine of Islam is, which means I want them to know who Muhammad is, I want them to know what the Quran says, and I want them to know what's in Sharia. We need to start there. Once we understand the nature of who we're dealing with, then we can do the best things that need to be done. But the way we're doing it now is like, it's, it just doesn't make any, any sense. If I were to go to speak in a university, I'd be shouted down. See, I rem- my dream of a university is, is a center of critical thought. So that sort of summarizes what I think should be done. This is an intellectual problem more than it is anything else. But we need to have the courage of examining ourselves and seeing where we're weak, where we're strong, improving ourselves and knowing the true nature of Islam. Okay, right. thank you very so much. Thank you for that. And so I also have a Johannes Kaiser uh, on. I will see if he has a question for you, Dr. Warner. Okay. Johannes, um, uh, are you available? You in there? Yes, I am. Do you hear me? Well, yes, I'm clear. Do you have a question for for Dr. Warner? Of course, uh, Dr. Warner. You remember Oriana Falacci, the Italian journalist yes. who interviewed uh, Khomeini. This was yes. the first woman who uh, interviewed Khomeini after taking over the power in uh, in uh, Iran. She wrote she a her, great she book. her hijab off at one point, as I recall. Yeah, that's right. Uh, she wrote a book. She's, she's uh, dead. Uh, sorry uh, for that. Uh, but she wrote a book accusing our political systems of being bought, our politicians by, uh, of being bought by the Saudi Arabs uh, to enforce the introduction of Islam in the Western world. And she was one of the most reputed. I think she became the Pulitzer too for yes. for her work. And she described in her in her book, I don't know the name on on, on English, how from the 60s on the Saudi Arabs started to buy politicians in the Western world to enforce to enforce a politic uh, of uh, infiltration yes. in uh, Europe. What in Europe and the United States too? Um, what do you think about this statement? Are you proposing, sir, that you can buy a politician and influence them with money? I am shocked. Oh, never. <laughs> Imagine. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, what you've said is completely true. I don't know about any particular details being right or wrong, but she is completely correct. We see the same thing in Europe. It breaks my heart to see how much the Saudis can buy. They can not only buy the body, but the heart and soul of people. The uh, House of Saud is no friend of the United States. And and by the way, Falachi, uh, before she became doing this work about Islam, was a darling of the left. And when she started investigating Islam and telling the truth, I believe they viciously turned against her. So anyway, I'm I'm saying that she was right. Completely right, which is a tragedy for me and our civil, my, my country and our civilization. But do right. we as democracies that are relying on elections that have to be by uh, much, much money, how can we protect us from this? Do we have a systemic problem as it has, for example, the Republic of Venedig, who was also called the whore of the Turks in the Middle Ages? 
Well, you've posed the problem quite well. I'm in a struggle on a daily basis against people who out who outspend me and out influence me a million to one. My sole response to this is, at the end of the day, I've done all I can to oppose that, but I'm not a fool. We have a we have a big problem, and I don't have all the answers to it. Money has always bought politicians, so I mean it's a classical problem. All I know to do is to keep doing what I'm doing now, which is to say that we're being sold out by our own people. And that it, and it, uh, Oriana Falachi was completely and sadly correct. But I don't have a real answer for it other than I try to do what I can every day to enlighten the people, the fact that our politicians are not representing our civilization. And I can, I can not only rant about the left, I can also rant about the Republicans. Ugh. But we're yeah. going to be in my time. Well, this is Cliff again. Uh, Dr. Warner, we, I just want one last question from one of our other guests. And then okay. uh, we, I guess we better let you. I know we, we, we actually slightly went over your time. So, Eli, I'm going to start billing you for the additional question. hours here now. <laughs> <laughs> well, darn it. Uh, Eli, do you, do you have a quick question for Dr. Warner before he, he leaves us? Uh, no, I don't think I really have a question. I just uh, I've been happy to hear everything he has to say, and I've, I've heard some of his stuff before, so it's good to hear you again dr warner um i might like to take a crack at johannes's question if i may go for it well before, um, okay go ahead and then go ahead go ahead okay. eli just so, keep in mind um, uh, dr warner's kind of on a time time frame the the question was about i think the vulnerability of democracy and um the uh i think the main issue here is something that economists call the problem of of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. So um, democracies are actually fairly susceptible to special interest corruption, to um, being hijacked by uh, concentrated interest groups that, that can derive a concentrated benefit from imposing a dispersed cost on a much larger number of people. Mm-hmm. And if they if that concentrated interest has a lot more to gain you know, individually, they're going to find it easier to organize and they're going to be more motivated and more capable than that larger group, you know, voters or taxpayers or whoever the case may be, that's bearing the dispersed cost. Um, If they're bearing a smaller cost, you know, per individual, it's going to be harder to organize that larger group to oppose the uh, concentrated interest. Agreed. Um, And so, uh, you know, this is kind of a basic problem with democracy, and I could see how it would apply in a situation like this. Um, and uh, you know, there may there may be no there may be no way to solve it within the context of democracy, but there are other systems. Like I think monarchy has better incentives overall. Let me let me do, let me point out one asset that we do have. The Saudis have all the money in the world. We have something else. If you took all the people such as myself in the United States, they would probably fit on a 737. I don't really know that's the case, but they're fewer than 1,000. Yet we, we few, uh, it, it finds that we find out that Silicon Valley titans that run Google and other such things have to use cheating methods to oppose us. Why? Because we have the, the truth of the matter. So the strength that we have is the truth of uh, what we talk about. Those who defend Islam, turns out on a one-on-one conversation, can't really defend it at all because they don't really know anything. So 
The few that we are, with the very little money that we have, are a bone in the throat of the government. We're a bone in the throat of, the, of those who run the Internet. We're a bone in the throat of the leftist media. So what, how few we are and what we want to do is expand our numbers is that we can oppose powerful simply because we have something that we don't, they don't have. We have the truth of the matter. We have the truth of history, the truth of the doctrine, and the truth of the effects of the doctrine. So that's my optimism. I'm a retired professor. I'm a great believer in critical thought, and so that's what I try to introduce to people to is the facts of the matter and reasoning, because I can out-debate any of those with the billion dollars they have. So that's my point of optimism. Well, I, I think I'm into that. that, that yeah, I think that that's, that's pretty awesome, Dr. Warner. I, I think it goes back to a quote by a, a particular uh, philosopher. Said, Reality is the perfect enemy. It always fights back. It can never be defeated. And infinite energy can be expended in unsuccessfully resisting it. So uh, as long as you have reality on your side, I, I think that it's going to be very difficult to defeat you, even if they have bucket loads and wheelbarrow loads, truck loads of money. It's truckloads. Um, <laughs> truckloads is probably right. And I guess one last thing before we let you go. Uh, what is your feeling about uh, Salman Rushdie's old book, uh, Satanic Verses? Did you ever read that? I've never actually read it. My wife has, but I've never actually read it. Uh, so well, I, can't, I, can't make it from, I know the event he's talking about, but I don't know the actual book. He, by the way, still well, lives I know under protection. What's that, that? He still lives under Would protection. You say Dr. Warner? Yes, he does, because they issued uh, – basically uh, the, the Ayatollah issued a death warrant for him. Uh, and what's interesting is is that he, he essentially he's, – you know, he's British, but he's a, 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 I guess a British um, uh, uh, Indian, uh, and, and he has he, – he, he revealed a lot of these things, a lot of the, the terrible, terrible things that, that occur within – uh, countries that are governed under Islamic law and the things that, that the Quran uh, talks about at a time, you know, 50, 60 years ago when nobody was talking about it. So it's highly controversial. Um, so, uh, well, I guess we're, we're down to that point. We've definitely went over the time that you allotted us, and I'm extremely grateful <laughs> that you've been gracious enough to answer the questions for some of the, our guests and, and to respond to us. Um, and again, I would like to give you a moment to talk about, you know, just kind of let us know what you are working on and anything else that you want us to know about so that we can access your materials. Well, if you're curious about what I do, I run a website called politicalislam.com. It's got videos, newsletters. It's got my books on it. I've got a Facebook page, Bill Warner author. I've got a YouTube channel, political Islam. And, uh, to check in on me. I try to be amusing as well as informative. But thing, I want to thank you for the opportunity to help let me talk to the people. Thank you so much. Well, yeah, you're you're welcome, Doctor Warner. We're we're very grateful to have you on the show, and we hope to have you back again sometime. You have to invite me. That's all. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a good evening. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Well, uh, David, uh, there was the man himself, Dr. Bill Warner. I'm, of course, a huge fan of his. Uh, uh, the Just astounding information that he always puts in his videos and just so much stuff that, I mean, it's amazing how much information he's covered over over the years on this particular topic. Uh, what do you think of, of 
some of the things that Dr. Warner had to say. David, did any of it stand out to you in particular? Uh, pretty much all of it. <laughs> all of it? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it was, uh, it was Johannes. Oh, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. I didn't realize you had more to say. Go right ahead. Yeah, I never uh, have messaged him or anything, and when I emailed him today, he told me to call him. <laughs> that was that was an interesting <laughs> experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's definitely he's very nice. He's a very very nice gentleman and uh, very well spoken. And uh, it was just he covered so much. I mean, it was unbelievable. He covered so much ground in thirty, thirty-five, forty minutes that I, I can't believe it. I mean, it was extremely informative. Uh, Johannes, did, did, how did, did anything that uh, Dr. Warner have to say about the topic sort of stand out to you? Well, I followed Dr. Warner for a long time, so I wasn't uh, surprised about the information because uh, I have enjoyed it before. And uh, yes, I would I would like to have to uh, to have more time to. Uh, Put him on the on the, in the into the torture chamber of questioning a lot of things. Uh, Are and, you trying to put uh, Doctor Warner into an inquisition? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, for for as long as it takes one to get all information out, when I can possibly get from him, uh, I would sure. uh, on the same time because we were on the same uh, on on the last. Uh, on the last topic and I was thinking yes, when they have about the truth, about the criticism about Islam and everything and I was thinking about the stats in uh, in uh, Germany that is one of the most repressive countries in the world against free speech and against uh, political incorrectness and no matter that 80% of the population in Germany are against political Islam. And are, uh, this doesn't translate directly into votes, but they don't like it. Right. So there is right. and I, there and is I, I hope, picked I that think. up before. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen that before. And I thought, I thought Eli, I thought you made a, a strong point regarding, you know, that, that particular weak point that you find in in democracy uh, for special interest groups, and it does allow an, in, an a, a a hole into the system, which allows in some cases outside actors who are not necessarily who are definitely not acting in the best interest of the population of the society here to get in and sort of um, uh, I don't know how you would say it, just subterfuge. You know, they're able to get in and to to turn things on the on the the majority of the population that lives here. Now, I know that one of the things that you talked about with David about coming on the show was you, you had a particular topic that you wanted to discuss regarding the Crusades. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about about that. About the Crusades, uh, crusades itself. Well, well Eli, Eli uh, is on. Uh, he, he had a particular uh, portion of the Crusades that he wanted to discuss. Oh, Eli. Yeah, do you, oh, I was do you just know what say, I'm referencing, Eli? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just going to say, you know, uh, so so first of all, I myself am not a Christian. Um, so the subject of the Crusades uh, might well, be a little mind, bit... If you don't mind me asking, if you don't mind me asking, 
uh, yeah. if you're you're not a Christian, are you an atheist? Um, no. I guess you could say that I'm religious, but not spiritual. Okay. Uh, I I, well, I have I, a, I, I have a very complicated. I have a very complicated uh, view of religion, and it, it may be too much to get into uh, here. Uh, <laughs> sure. I usually just tell sure. people no, I'm I, a non non practicing pagan. Um, if I that makes it. any and, sense. And I, and I, no, no, that that makes sense, and I and I and I kind of understand. And, and hey, I mean, nobody's here on this show. We're we're not gonna go after anybody or anything like that over views. Uh, we we're perfectly fine with that. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm fairly certain that whatever it is that, that you have going on, it's Western centric. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Knowing you, Eli. So, um, so, so so from what, that from that perspective, um, you know, from that perspective, I don't necessarily approve of the Northern Crusades, where uh, you know Christians were were going into the Baltic and stuff to uh, Christianize pagans. Um, okay. But you know, as far as the Southern Crusades, you know, against Islam or whatever, those are, you know, as Dr. Warren points out, like manifestly, uh, you know, retaliatory in nature, or even defensive, not aggressive, you know. And so there's ample mm-hmm. provocation there, um, and a long, long history of provocation prior to those Crusades, um, you know, and on a much greater scale than the Crusades themselves. So, you know, there's, there's. There's almost no way to uh, to, to uh, attack those as such. You might be able to quibble with little details here and there. May I contradict a point? Sure, go ahead. Uh, the Crusades in the north. You don't have. You can't uh, forget that uh, on the same time the Islamic hordes were uh, invading the south of Europe. Uh, the northern Vikings were invading uh, Britain. They were uh, attacking France. Western France. Yeah. Yes. And that was still on, uh, the one empire. So uh, the interest of the, uh, of the uh, empire of the Franks, West Franks and East Franks, to get rid of these permanent uh, aggressions were objectively uh, there. I think there is just one war that was uh, that was also criticized by the church where the people were forced to convert and that was the war fr- uh, from Charlemagne Carl the Great against the Saxons in Germany. Mm-hmm. But the but the rest of the wars were mostly uh, in defensive nature the, uh, the in 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 the in the uh, Understanding that you have sometimes want to get rid of centers of uh, piracy and of uh, attacks on your own lands. Uh, so okay. it, it's not so simple uh, to say it was just to Christianize the people. All right. Well, I, I don't really know enough to dispute you on that. So we'll just, uh, you know, chalk it up to civilizational conflict and... Uh, <laughs> Call it water under the bridge. Then how about that? Um, but but another crusade I wanted to mention actually was the Albigensian Crusade, and th- this was a uh, a crusade that happened in the south of France primarily, 
And there was this heretical religious sect called the Albigensians or the Cathars or the, the Bon Am. They called themselves the good men, mm-hmm. um, which, which was meant to be, you know, uh, a, a way of contrasting themselves with the Catholics. Right. So it's kind of an insulting, uh, an insulting way to contrast themselves with the Catholics. Um, and uh, this sect had a lot of strange beliefs. I think they thought that it was uh, sinful to bring a life into the world. And so they were anti, anti-natalist and they, they um, advocated sodomy. Um, and uh, no property. They were, uh, I'm not a hundred percent. I know there were some Anabaptist sects later that were against property, but I'm not sure about the Albigensians. Yes, they um, were against property. They said it was a sin to have uh, to be rich. Okay. Were the so communists another... of the of the eleventh uh, century? <laughs> another another point against them. Then they were pacifists. You know, they wouldn't do military service, and um, I believe they were also vegetarians. For you know, also stemming from the pacifism. Um, so they had the fairly. They had fairly um, gender egalitarian views, at least for the day. You know, they believed in reincarnation, so they thought that a man could be reincarnated as a woman and a woman as a man. So, as a consequence of that belief, they permitted women to rise relatively high within their hierarchies. Um, Not all the way to the top, I don't think, but, but close enough to scandalize people. (laughs) <laughs> a very progressive sect, isn't it? Yeah, they were they were extremely progressive. Um, but the uh the problem with it was it was actually kind of taking off and there were a lot of them in this region in southern France. And so the the I think the Catholic Church tried to evangelize to them for a while and bring them back into the fold. And when that didn't work, they told the nobles they had to deal with it. And at that point, it was already, it had taken root um, to such an extent that the nobles, you, you know, they didn't want to cause that kind of disruption to their communities by uprooting it. And well, um, they were also destroying the churches, the Catholic churches. They were destroying property. They were uh, closing the, how do you say this, where the monks are together. Um the houses of the monks, so they were they, they, they were not so pacifist as they uh, as they, as they said. Uh, the, the, it, it is like our progressives to say they're for peace, but you dare to have another opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Um, but what they ended up just doing was declaring a crusade against them. And they told the French king he had to deal with it. And so he raised an army. And I think one of the first major battles of that crusade was uh, at a place called Bézier. And when the the Catholic army got to the city, um, they told all the good Catholics to come out so that they could be spared. And no one came out. So the French commander said kill them all, God will know his own. But it was a bishop who said that. Yeah. And so I think that's uh, where... 
Yes. That's kind of become a, a in various forms. That's kind of become a cliche. I think the modern form is, uh, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out. But that that's where that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you don't, you have to think in their categories. You're living you're living seventy years uh, at most on those times, and then you have eternity. Um, if you don't. If you don't uh, do God's will on this side of the of the of life, you're condemned for all eternity. So when you say, when, "Okay, God will sort them out," when dying was not the problem of the people on those times. When they were dying from everything all the time, the problem for yeah, they them really, was they was weren't really eternity. scared of death. Excuse me? They weren't really scared of death. I said they weren't really scared of death because uh, life was sort of br- brutal and short then around that time anyway. Um, you know. Um, David, do you, well, no, have you ever done any reading about, about this particular crusade? Um, I've, I've heard stuff about the Albigensian crusade with um, the Cathars. I, I, I know the narrative, but I haven't looked into it too hugely or anything like that um i wanted to jump the timeline probably it's probably a bit back but i wanted to ask uh, johannes a question um i've heard it said to me that uh that um constantinople was sacked because of greed is that true at all is there any truth to that statement uh, it is very true. You don't. You you have to remember that most of these armies, especially the later ones, were um, professional soldiers. And if they didn't get paid, they sucked. So and there was a conflict between uh, Vene- uh, uh, Venezia the this, uh, Republic of uh, Venezia and the Byzantine uh, Empire. So as they were putting their troops in direction of, of uh, the Middle East, the Venetian uh, commanders this, of, of the fleet, because they had uh, the command uh, the command of the of the ships, they had the ships. They just uh, turned around and gone with the Crusaders' army into Constantinople. But this action was sharply condemned by the church. So it is called a crusade. It started as a crusade. But in the middle of the way, uh, the Republic of uh, Venezia, to enforce their economic interests, uh, just attacked one of the most important um, uh, bunkers of Christianity in, in, in the Middle East. So that's, that's one of the biggest shames when, uh, ever for, yeah, a, for a military force. Was a, was a was a major uh, center for, for whole, I mean, it was a major holy center for, for the West. Sure. I mean, just look at the, some of the capital of capital. Go ahead, go ahead, Johannes. It was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. What was left of the Roman Empire was in Constantinople and was the Byzantine Empire. Right. 
So, well. so Eli, um, going back to the topic that you mentioned earlier, you were talking about, did you say the Albigensian Crusades? Is that how it's pronounced? Al- Albigensian, I think. I, I don't uh, know Albigensian. if I've ever heard it pronounced. Okay. Okay. So, so you were saying, okay, so, so, I mean, do you guys view this as a good thing? I mean, sh- sh- is this something that, that sh- is shameful itself or not shameful from your perspective? I mean, because I don't really think I, I, I heard anyone really express their particular feelings on, on what they read. I mean, of course, none of us were there, right? But, but I mean, do you, is this, do you perceive this as a, as a bad crusade or as a good crusade? No, I'm totally sympathetic to the church's position on this one. Um, and uh, the the Albigensian crusade, to me, illustrates that, you know, this progressivism stuff is nothing new. Like, it crops up from time to time. You know, going back, you know, they were dealing with it in the 16th century and in the 12th century and, you know, who knows how many times before, you know. You could argue that early Christianity, like in Acts or whatever, is a very leftist and kind of socialist um, movement in a way. Um, so, you know, this mm-hmm. stuff kind of crops from time to time. And uh, in the case of the Albigensian crusade, they ultimately put it down with uh, sufficient vigor to, uh, you know, keep it down for a few hundred years. But we're living in the opposite case scenario right now, which is, you know, what happens when you don't do that? What happens when you let the Albigensians take over? And uh, mm. you know, that's kind of what we've been for the last 50 years. That is a very interesting point that you just made. So, so one of the things that, I mean, every, every kid, every child of school age, public school in the United States, and I'm going to assume probably even more so in Europe, is hammered uh, in their history and social studies classes about what a travesty the crusades were for the you know for for the ancient world or for the you know the the medieval world and how how much you know how evil they were how much damage they did and you know how how civilized the the muslims were in the middle east and when the christians got there you had societies where uh, muslims and jews and christians were all living happily everybody was perfectly happy and then all of a sudden, you know, these knights show up in their shiny armor and just start lopping heads off of all the Jews and the Muslims. And what I think what we see here is a situation where um, the, the Muslims uh, actually uh, put an extra tax on non-Muslims. So if you were a Christian or you were a Jew, you had to make payments in order to be able to keep your religion. So you had a choice. You could either con- uh, convert or you're going to pay extra taxes. And you were still treated as a second-class citizen. You can see, I mean, it's not much different than the way, for instance, if you're a Korean in Japan are treated. Uh, you're never really accepted. You have to get out of the way whenever a, a Muslim walks by. You still have to adhere to all the, the Islamic laws for the most part in public, or, or you're going to be killed. Um, and so now what we're seeing is that exported to the West, and nobody is doing anything. To, to, because the attitude of the people that are these refu- these quote refugees unquote uh, that are coming into the West, even though they're not in a majority, their attitude is that of a majority because they think eventually they will be, and so they're in some ways uh, as much as possible they're trying to enforce that way of thinking 
on the people that are already there, the natives. So, so when you don't suppress that, when you don't go to the hornet's nest and do damage to the hornet's nest and disperse it, when you don't actively suppress this type of behavior, you're right. What but happened? You're, and you're we're our, it's so bad. But well, it's so bad though that it's not just that we're not suppressing it. We're teaching our why it's bad to suppress. You're forgetting one point. Uh, one, two points. First point, you were also banned to bear arms <laughs> as, a, as a Christian or as a Jew. Second uh, point, if you're not a Christian or a Jew, if you're a pagan, you get killed automatically. You have no protection at all. Uh, the third point, the first crusade started after the caliph of... Uh, of uh, well, well, let me just point out that that Jesus told Christians that you might have to beat your plowshares into swords. Yeah, and but we we shouldn't forget that we were victims of an aggression over 400 years before the first response. 400 right. years of of Islamic attacks, including well, it goes all the way the back to Rome. It goes all the way back to the Roman Empire. It didn't just start with the Middle Ages. You're right. Many many years. It started when Rome was still intact. Go ahead. Uh, almost. Uh, they were. They destroyed the the, the called crazy caliph of Cairo, Hakim. I don't know the the, the, the rest of the name. The crazy Hakim. This guy <laughs> let. To, to, no, he was called like that. He, no, no, this no, guy no. Led, led all churches in his uh, domain being destroyed, including the birth uh, church of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. Uh, the Islamic hordes fall into Rome and destroyed uh, the church and the grave of, of, of uh, Peter. Of the Holy Peter. That's why the the walls of Rome were expanded to protect that uh, place. They were making slaves in the whole of the south coast of uh, Europe. Millions of uh, people were enslaved over 400 years of maritime control in the Mediterranean, and that stopped just after the Battle of Lepanto. So, the the, the people. The United States, their first intervention into a foreign uh, outside of the United, of, of the American continent was to stop the piracy of the barbaric states in North Africa, because right. they were Tunisian. harassing. Well, that was Thomas Jefferson, and the grounds, yeah. uh, the motive, because there is an an Quran in the White House, is because Thomas Jefferson wanted to understand. Why, as he asked the uh, ambassador of the barbaric states to stop this harassing, he said to him, then pay as tribute. And the United States, before Jefferson gone to war, paid tribute. Right. It paid tribute. And well, you know, um, you, you mentioned that, and I've read uh, the... Uh, Damas Malone's uh, six-volume auto or biography of Thomas Jefferson, and it talks about that quite a bit. And it was one of the only times that Thomas Jefferson um, regretted 
his reductions in the size of the United States Naval Force when he came into power. He, he reduced it to about 16 ships. And when that occurred, he, he actually re- regretted doing that, taking it down from like 30-something vessels to, to just 16. So, um, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. So, so David, um, do you have uh, any particular aspect of the Crusades that, or a question that you want to pose regarding this topic? Because this topic is one that you suggested. Of course, it's an excellent topic. Um, so do you have anything that you'd like to talk about? Uh, um, yeah, to uh, Johannes. Um, people I've heard post to me is that uh, uh, since Pope John Paul II apologized for the Crusades, the the what happened during the Crusades that uh, this means the church is, uh, um, has sinned in the past, that it's got blood on its hands. Um, what, what would you say to that? I would say that Catholics have the problem that they want to be sinners. Because if they're not uh, sinners, then Jesus Christ died in vain. Uh, it is a stupid s- thing to say after 1,000 years, we're, we're going to apologize for defending ourselves and for doing that what was necessary. Those who kill okay. by the sword should die by the sword. Point. And we were, we were uh, attacked over 400 years before the first reaction. I don't think that the Catholic Church... The Catholic Church has lots of things to apologize for. Lots. Crusades are not one of them. Well, see, see, okay, so that that point about how how you know with, with the Catholic Church, Christianity, and just, just falls over itself to apologize for defending itself, and not just the Crusades. And I think uh, Eli, uh, when when I think of that, it, it kind of reminds me or makes me uh, it helps me to somewhat understand why there are a lot of young men nowadays recently more so than even you know, 15 or 20 years ago, who find um, uh, non-Christian religions more palatable because they, they don't feel like that they should have to apologize for, for defending themselves or, or feel guilty for this sort of thing. Of course, they've been beat over the head, not just by the, by the church, but by secular society repeatedly about you know, feeling bad about defending yourselves against some of these people. What, I mean, does, does that play into any of the factors as far as for you, as far as not necessarily feeling very uh, interested in being a Christian? Um, well, there's a, a variety of factors there, but that's certainly one of them. You know, I want a religion you, that will sanction. I want a religion that will sanction, you know, the building of skull pyramids with the the heads of my enemies and, and the lighting of an eternal beacon with their rendered tallow on top, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff I'm into. So from that perspective, you know, I don't have, I don't have much problem with the crusades, you know, people complain about the crusades and the inquisition. And, uh, you know, one of my biggest complaints about Christianity now is it, it doesn't do that kind of stuff. Because in some ways it feels, it feels sort of weak in, in regard to our enemies and, you know, the last thing you want to be told when, when they're, you know, you've got gang rapes running up and down, uh, gangs of rapists running up and down your streets, raping, raping women and, and in many cases underage girls uh, and, and things like that going on. 
and, and then you're being told that you should feel guilty. I see why it would not be very appealing to a lot of people, you know. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things from my perspective that Christianity needs to return to. We we need to stop apologizing, and we need to we need to start understanding that um, the, these other groups um, that we well. A good example is with Islam. If you're not Muslim, you know you're fair game. And I think we need to go back to that with Christianity. If you're not Christian, well, or you're not, or you at least don't have Christian values and Western values, then maybe we need to start looking at you as though you don't really matter that much as well, and, and begin to to treat you that way. Well, well, I think church, the, the, excuse me, okay, a second. Go ahead. The church were on that on that path under Benedict II. In his speak in uh, in uh, the University of Regensburg, uh, pa- uh, Pope uh, Benedict said, when quoting an, uh, an uh, Byzantine empire, emperor, what have brought uh, Islam if not the sword and violence? And it was a huge, a huge uh, outrage everywhere. And he was really starting to get on that path. And then the United States, with Obama on top and Hillary Clinton, or, uh, orchestrated a kind of of putsch, of 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 uh, takeover in the Vatican itself, and that's like uh, why we have now this this Jesuitic communist as a pope, right? <laughs> Playing politics. Playing yeah. Politics. Yeah. So, so, so well, Eli, so. I mean, if you look at, for instance, um, uh, Norse, the Norse, Norse religions, even the ancient Celtic religions, which are not that dissimilar from, from a lot of the Norse religions, and in some regards they're almost like similar versions of each other. Um, I mean, they didn't, they didn't mince any words. I mean, they, they didn't have any problems with, with taking the fight to the enemy, and they knew exactly who their enemies were. And I think Christianity used to be a little more like that, even though you still had monks and priests preaching peace and love and so on. You, you had you had your knights and you had or you know, Christians who were willing to go out and and face you know these kinds of threats like like you find from Islam right now head on. This stuff wouldn't be happening seven eight hundred years ago, not even a little bit. Europe, that's happening now. I mean, would, well, wouldn't you uh, say that that? Yeah, certainly not in Europe. Uh, and and like Dr. Warner pointed out, you know, they spent seven hundred years in Spain fighting the Reconquista, you know, to take back the Iberian Peninsula from the, uh, from the Moors. And so, you know, they were pretty serious about that. And it's, that's a really inspiring story um, because maybe because how how dark things sometimes seem now, um, how that, that Reconquista actually began. And, and, uh, you know, the Moors, when they attacked in 7-Eleven, they, uh, they won a big, big battle against the uh, Visigothic king. And um, I think they killed the king and a lot of his nobles. And the Visigothic kingdom just unraveled immediately um, to, to a very complete extent. because uh, Mainly because I think the Visigothic nobility in Spain was su- such a small percentage of the population um, that, uh, you know, that defeat just really like unraveled the whole kingdom. And so it, it fell in rapid succession after that. And it wasn't until 
722 that they had a victory at a place called um, Cavadonga in the Cantabrian mountains in, in northern Spain in Asturias. And um, there was a, a Visigothic noble named Pelagius, and, and he may have only had a few hundred warriors under his command, but they were able to stop a Moorish force in these narrow mountain valleys and, um, and push them back. And, uh, and that was the, that was the, the victory that stopped the Moorish conquest of Spain, you know, leaving this little kingdom of Asturias unconquered. And that was the, the, the launching pad, the platform from which the Reconquista began, you know, after that. And, uh, it became like a refuge for, um, you know, Visigothic and, and other Christian uh, warriors from all over Spain who had come to Asturias to, to join this Reconquista. And so, uh, mm. you know, I don't know how things are going to get, how bad things are going to get in Europe, especially, you know, they're already pretty well underway. And, uh, y- you know, it's not to the point where you couldn't unravel it gracefully if you had responsible leadership, but it, that's not something... Um, I see a lot of at the moment. So, so I don't know how much hope we can hold out for that, but uh, you know, as bad as it gets, you know, and this is another point of optimism, like, like Dr. Warren's uh, speech about, you know, having the truth on your side and, and they have to use all these dirty tricks against you because um, you know, that's all they've got kind of stuff. But this, uh, this turning point in this reconquista was just a handful of guys, you know, a few hundred in the Cantabrian mountains um, who stopped this Moorish force. And that was where it, it, the whole thing turned around. And it was 700 years after that, that they, they were fighting them back. But that's where, that was the inflection point, you know, where they stopped retreating okay. and started advancing. Well, I, and I think one of the things that too, you look at, uh, he was mentioning the, uh, you know, all the destruction uh, in in North Africa and uh, up along the southern European coast, and it's sort of a pincer move. And and we have a tendency to forget because we've had it for so long. But we had, lo- you know, the Western world had lost the works of Aristotle, uh, and and it was through those those the, the Moors, the the libraries, they had a lot of uh, Jewish scholars in in southern Spain, and. Aristotle was rediscovered after they had reconquered Spain from the Moors. The, the funny thing about it is, though, is that, uh, that that's what was going on, is that, is that the, the Muslims, uh, through all these years, these centuries, as they were conquering areas, they were plundering libraries, uh, plundering Western libraries, and not sharing that information with us. I mean, obviously, because they viewed us as enemy. So we were able to uh, do more than just take back land in that particular war. We took back some Western European, some some European heritage uh, back from them, and and that's the, one of the main reasons why the Catholic Church is Aristotelian now instead of Platonic. And it, you know, a lot, there was a lot of pushback against. Uh, the introduction of Aristotle, even by Aquinas. And, and the reason why is because a lot of the uh, older Platonic scholars, or the priests, 
bishops and, and so forth, uh, viewed that as Islamic, uh, Islamic philosophy, Islamic <laughs> theology slash philosophy well, instead of being Greek or you know Aristotle. That's not completely exact. The first university founded in uh, in uh, Europe was the University of Bologna, and it was founded before the First Crusade. Oh, okay. Well, or something like that. I think that's and, the standard narrative is that it was primarily rediscovered mostly uh, through works from like Averroes and some of the others in Spain. Now, they may have rediscovered some of it, but a lot of the text came from uh, stuff that they had found that had been translated from Greek to Arabic to Hebrew, and then they end up translating it back again. So, that they, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the standard, that's oh, but the standard that, narrative. That, the, the standard narrative, but it makes no sense because you don't have to forget one thing. Aristotle's was not dead in the Eastern uh, Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire was still there, Constantinople. And it had very strong commercial uh, relations with the rest of Europe. So uh, there, there was no, it, it didn't get lost. It just was like that, that our, our uh, societies were so primitive, we had no time for philosophy. But well, most, they were heavily most platonic, these... and there was an awful lot of platonic philosophy going on around that time. Now, there, there may have been some circling you know, through different channels, but I can tell you that it was not prominent, and it was it was viewed as Islamic philosophy by and large, even though it wasn't, because it had been translated into Arabic and, and Hebrew uh, instead of its original Greek form. Which I'm pretty sure that that um, Aristotle fled fled Athens, and centuries later, uh, it was actually see. And here's the problem, and this is where it got lost. <laughs> The, the the king and I believe it was Justinian declared there it, it to not basically he outlawed philosophy uh, at least non Christian philosophy and they actually they they shut it all down and and took it all away and covered it up so he he didn't want it around so in, even in Byzantium they were not talking about it not because it was necessarily lost but it was lost to the rest of the world because they suppressed it. And that, that is a fact, that, that they issued it, it, had, that it to make it illegal. Yes, but if it had been like that, that wouldn't explain the tons, tons, really tons of, uh, of uh, Byzantine scholars who fled from Constantinople 1492 after the sack of the city by the Muslims, the final destruction of the, of the former capital of the Eastern Empire, uh, Roman Empire to mm-hmm. uh, the Western world and that got their, their uh, how do you say this, uh, their places to work also in the, in, in the universities who was being founded 300 years before in, uh, in Italy, in uh, Prague, in Praga, that was a German city on that, uh, on that time, uh, in uh, La Sorbonne, in France, that they, they got their, their jobs and they brought their materials uh, with them. So, and you see from that point on, you see the start of the Renaissance. Well, well one, of the, one of the things, though, is that, that even though, I mean, that, that could be the case, 
I mean, there was there were plenty of illegitimate manuscripts of different types of material out there that that is not considered to be uh, something that you should you should be purveying in public back then. I can tell you that that Greek philosophy in the Byzantine Empire was not was not something that was smiled. Upon. It was not something that was you you wouldn't you wouldn't be doing that in public because they had made it illegal for the most part. I think so we they, know they too. did escape with copies of it. These were these were not legitimate copies. This was not a legitimate. You know, this is not something where where I'm escaping with copies of stuff that everybody in Byzantine knew about and was studying. I'm escaping with maybe a few copies of something that's not supposed to exist. Well, I don't know if we know enough about the Byzantine Empire to make that statement. It's a very interesting thing. One historian said for a short time, a short time ago, I, I can't remember his name, that the fall of, of, of the Byzantine Empire was such a trauma for the Western world that we still don't study it. Well, it was. There is, I mean, but I, there I is can't say, few, can say with confidence that Justinian did did do away with Greek. He, he did not want Greek philosophy spread. He, he he suppressed it. We know this. It's a fact. We we have okay, but we have Justinian. It Justinian is uh, uh, is uh, was uh, lived in the sixth century. There's a lot of time between right, the sixth century is, and 1492. But he was the religious leader, and if you look at if you look at the similar situation, for instance, Pope Francis, there are a lot of things that he can say, but he cannot do away with everything that the previous popes before him said. And and yeah, thank I'm, God. I'm telling you that that with with the Byzantine with the Byzantines, Greek philosophy was not something that they wanted spread, even though it was primarily a Greek empire. I mean, at that but point. It, it is interesting that in the in the in the curricula of the first two universities who were open in uh, the Holy G- uh, Roman Empire German nation, there was Aristoteles was in there. Aristoteles, well, yeah, you know, but, uh, by, by, by but, it, but this is in the but this is in the year uh, thousand and I don't know thousand and sixty or something like that. Uh, well, I can tell you that that by 1492, um, Aquinas was already discussing. These guys were already discussing. Um, uh, I believe they sh- they were they were already discussing uh, Aristotle. Um, if I'm not correct. Well, the, scholar- so it, the scholastic school. We're working with this. Right. And uh, with with Aristoteles, and uh, I, I think there were parts of Aristoteles who were banned. No, oh, I'm sure but, of it, and and I know that Averroes and and other Aristotelian uh, Islamic uh, philosophers, scholars were their works were banned, and they kind of made their way into the system anyway with with the priests. The works of Averroes were banned in the Islamic world, not in yeah, the Western. They were. They were well, they weren't—they weren't necessarily uh, banned, in the sense that you know there was some sort of, of church uh, announcement on it or church church law or canon on it. But there was there was uh, uh, there were a lot of bishops who would not who, who basically uh, uh, did everything they could to stop it from spreading. 
and uh, there, there was a, it was it was a major major argument uh, that went on for nearly a century within the church. There were those who were who wanted to stick with the you know the, the Platonic side of of the Christian theology, uh, and and like as I said, viewed the stuff that Aquinas was talking about and so on as they viewed it as Islamic, right or wrong, and so it was suspicious. Well, possibly, it was, it, possibly it was a it was a big struggle, um, but but you know obviously it eventually won out either either way whether it was around from 1060 on or it was around with Aquinas it came in the, came in you know some sometime just before Aquinas it doesn't really matter I mean it did win out and that that its dominance in the church didn't really happen until after the Crusades for the most part were over. Well, we do know one thing. The Crusades one gave air to the Byzantine Empire one to survive 400 years. Right. Uh, we also know that after the fall of the Byzantine Empire, we lost the whole of the Balkans and Greece. And that the next wave of uh, conquer uh, breaked down over Vienna two times where they were stopped the Turks right uh, we know that the last time the, they came uh, with Mike to conquer the center of Europe it was 1688 and that this, this uh, menace was stopped 250 years ago because of mm. our military uh, military uh, superiority, technological uh, techno- uh, superiority, that's something what Winston Churchill himself says in uh, in uh, his book the, Ri- the River War. Right. So uh, we have we have here a phenomenon uh, phenomenon that's not new, and the ground because we are uh, retreating on all fronts. Is because we have weakened ourselves from within. We destroyed our our uh, our confidence in ourselves in two world wars, and then we have this this decadent uh, uh, phenomena that is called progressivism and Marxism, cultural Marxism, that is grabbing uh, or nagging uh, at our, our value system and we have corrupt politicians. It's, it's a perfect storm. Yeah, well, I, I agree. I mean, I, and I think, I, I don't, I think Eli <laughs> listened to some of the stuff he said earlier in the show or some of the things that he mentioned uh, when he was talking to, to Dr. Warner at point he made. I, I don't, I don't think you disagree with that too much. Do you Eli that, that we have a serious problem with corruption? Yeah, no, that's definitely the the biggest problem is is our own because we have the power to resist this, right? We have mm-hmm. along every conceivable dimension. You know, we don't have the numerical advantage, say, but but we have enough numbers given our technology and economies and everything else, you know, to hold them at bay indefinitely. And so, so the right. only reason we aren't is some kind of. Uh, 
you know, some kind of weakness of mind or, or spirit or character, you know, cultural rot maybe. But yeah, uh, definitely uh, an element of subversion there, you know, from, from alien, uh, elements, you know, but, and we, and but we're not even that, about, but we're not talking about aliens from space either. Right. Right. Oh. No human aliens. Yeah. Um, careful. You never know what a listener might pick up <laughs> like that, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so my, you're meaning the reptilians, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. We don't want to go there. We've already had our flatter discussion. We're not going to turn this Lizard into people. a reptilian discussion. Lizard <laughs> well, or if it's Alex Jones. Anybody do a good Alex Jones? Uh, frogs are turning. Uh, the frogs are turning gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the frogs are turning gay. Uh, it's pedophiles. Pedophiles, damn it. So, so uh, you know, there does seem to be this collusion between the progressives who are, you know, the Alba, are Albigensians basically, and um, and the Muslims, and uh, you know, they're kind of colluding to 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 bring the Muslims in through the gates, um, and we're supposed to let them because you know they come in unarmed, and then whatever they do once they get here is. You know that's another question. I guess we're not we're not supposed to ask ask that question. Um, but actually, you know, I think it might be interesting to talk about the intersection between this ongoing Islamic invasion and libertarianism, because this is something that libertarians hmm. haven't always addressed very well in the past. Well, let me, let me just say before you go any further. That it's not it, it, it's not that it hasn't been addressed by a lot of libertarians. It's that a lot a lot of libertarians are uh, complicit in opening the gates, and that they can talk whatever they want. They can tell me whatever their ideology is. They can say, you know, ideologically, I'm a libertarian, but in action, when it really counts, they're progressive. They're they're, they're same as a cultural Marxist or whatever you want to call it. That's that's my position on that. Um, should we even get into that or should we just, you know, take it for granted that, um, a lot of the libertarian talking points on this are inadequate. They're absolutely a hundred percent inadequate. David, David, you and I have had this conversation about a hundred million times in the last 12 months. Have we not? Yes. Yeah. And, and tell me, tell Eli what your feelings are on, on that topic. On, uh, on the open, open borders, borders crowd, yeah, oh, yeah. God, they're they're ethnomasochist. You want to explain that for a minute? That's when you um, throw your culture away and bring in another culture, thinking you're going to have the same thing. And you're committing a lot of pain on your own culture, right? Yes. I think it's more well, complex than that. Huh? If you well, see most I, of I this, think it could be summed up pretty good like that. I mean, that's just, you know. But go ahead, go ahead, Johannes. I'm, I'm sorry. I think if you have, if you see these people, most of them are uh, persons that are, that struggle very harshly with their own, own uh, personal and family uh, family lives. They never had uh, an authority figure in the house. Most of them have been rising without a father. And in your 
if I'm not a psych, uh, 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 psychologist or something like that, but most most people, most men at least, need a father to uh, find boundaries, and you have to fight against your father to get your own your own uh, personality developed. That this what Freud called uh, this this uh, this necessity to kill the father in psychological terms, not not physically. And mm-hmm. when you don't have a father, you have to turn this aggression on something else, and they're turning it on their society. And they can't, and well. because society is not putting boundaries either, they're destroying it from within. Well, it, there's a lot of things going on there, and, and that is, and, and I do not disagree with that analysis, Johannes, and not at all. The, the problem is that there's a few other things that are going on there besides just, just not being born with a father. Um, in many cases, what's happened is that they have substituted the state for their father, the government. Of course. And when you, when you do this, you, it, 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 it changes your perspective on everything, including things like open borders and closed borders. Um, and it, it completely it – just, it just totally destroys the entire family, destruction, family structure. So, I mean, I don't know. Uh, and I, they feel, are, I feel as though – go ahead. And they are they're acting like people who are part of a sect, of a religious sect. They're absolutely closed to any rational argument. They're closed to reality. I don't know if you know this video of uh, KGB defector uh, that made a program late in the 70s uh, that's in YouTube, uh, Bresovsky or something like that. Bezmenov. Who was that? Was that you, Bez- David? What? Yuri Bezmenov. Bezmenov. Oh, Eli. Yeah. Yuri Des. Okay, go ahead. And he was. He described how they were working, how the KGB were investing more than 70% of all its resources in demoralizing Western society. And what did he said? what is demoralizing? That is that also if you, a demoralized person is somebody that also if confronted with new information, with his personal experience, is incapable to work this information out and take the right decision over it. And that okay. was and that was what he he described how they were penetrating the universities, how they were uh, penetrating the media, how they were uh, penetrating the, st- uh, the 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 states to get to this point to make the Western society as weak as possible for the taking over of the communists. Well, communism fell in the society, uh, Soviet Union and break down, but this, this phenomena had an own dynamic and worked also without the money no. from the Soviet Union because it has been fed by our own tax money. Now. Well, well, it, well the thing about it is, is communism fell in the Soviet Union and in different parts of the world, but but those who were here domestically, the Marxists who were here domestically, 
continued the program, obviously, because they're still doing it. And, and we call it critical theory, call it cultural Marxism, call it whatever you want to call it. Uh, now, some people call it progressive. I'm progressive. We, and, but if you talk to most of those progressives, they all love Marx. So, so I mean, even if they won't say they're Marxist, they'll say, oh, yeah, Marx said a lot of good stuff, and they'll talk about him to you. They know who he is. So I, I really think that, that what we're dealing with is something that might have been started by a group like that from externally. But those, but we have internal groups who have co-opted it, and they've continued the program, and they are a lot more successful probably than the KGB ever was. I think the KGB was giving the gave the starting uh, help, and this uh, developed from itself and from within. You know, the KGB right. made the infiltration of the church. We have also this uh, declaration of Bella Dot, the former. Uh, the former general secretary of the Communist Party in the United States. It's also on YouTube for people who want to hear it, where she explained how in the 20s, 1920, that's one century ago, the KGB was trying to infiltrate uh, the Catholic Church, introducing, for example, pedophiles into it. So... This is a very, we have been in a battle that has taken over 100 years. And because we had no access to this information, we were unable to fight against it. But now we're fighting back. And that's why we, they try to close our, our uh, media, our alternative media and uh, things like that. I became yesterday visit of the political police in Austria because of my videos in uh, YouTube. So there is, there is something they're working on. I don't... Well... Um, and, uh, <laughs> I... I, I, I I, I think there's a lot there. I mean, I, I do think there's something there, but I, I think that in the end, we have only ourselves to blame. Uh, those of us both who are who are behind this type of behavior, who are advocating turning a blind eye and allowing it to happen, and those of us who are turning a blind eye to those turning a blind eye, and those who are advocating it and allowing it to happen. Um, but we are we are getting close to the end of the show, and probably about about time we need to start looking at wrapping it. I would like to go around real quick one more time, um, and I wanted to turn it over to David for just a minute. See if he had any questions for you, Johannes, and you, Eli, from David uh, towards the end here. David, do you have questions? Do you have any questions at all that you would like to ask these guys before we before we wrap the show tonight? Um, I'd like to ask uh, Johannes. Um, um, is the uh, Quran a book of peace? <laughs> Everybody, don't don't believe me. And to all who listen to uh, this show, don't believe me. Read it. But read it remembering yeah. one thing. How to interpret it. Because the Quran is a book that it's ordered by the length of its verses and not by its chronological uh, appearance. And uh, posterior uh, verses... Subsede the previous ones 
That means that the peaceful verses of the first time of Mahoma, of Mohammed, as he had no uh, no political power, are being succeeded by the later verses when uh, Mohammed had political power, killed with his own hands from over a thousand Jews from decapitating them in uh, Medina, uh, and led over 70, 70 military campaigns against uh, his neighbors and against his own family in Mecca, the Quraysh. So take this book, read it, remember, please, this what I said, and then build your own opinion about it. I will not... Uh, if it is a book of peace, then Mein Kampf is a book of tolerance. <laughs> well, let me let me just say I, 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 that laugh when David asked you that I, I, I recorded. I'm going to play it back for you now, uh, Johannes. No, did you when you laugh when he said that? I was like, oh no. So, so Eli, um, yeah, before we before we uh, before we uh, stop and for the night, um, yeah, would you have any uh, points you'd like to make uh, before we move on for the night? Um, well, yeah, I could make a couple, but uh, probably first and most briefly, I'll just share a meme that I saw the other day, which is related to the last question about the uh, you know religion of peace or the book of peace. And, um, you know, people always say that Islam is a religion of peace and that it's just the extremists who are violent. Um, but the meme, the point the meme was making was, uh, you know, if Islam is a religion of peace, wouldn't the Islamic extremists just be extremely peaceful? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, logic. Boy, that's rough stuff, isn't it? Something like uh, a hippie nice. commune. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good point. Anything else you want to throw in there too, Eli? Um, you know, not without uh, endangering the uh, timeline here. I mean, there's probably a lot more <laughs> stuff we could get into, but maybe we can uh, get into that some other time. Yes. Yes, of course. Okay. And uh, David, any last, anything last, like right, right here at the end, any points you want to make before we go? Um, I wanted to ask uh, one more question for um, Johannes. He's he's got a lot of information. <laughs> you seem to have a lot of questions, so go ahead and have uh, it. Um, could you summarize uh, for the audience uh, from what you've read? Uh, how the Crusades was a defensive action by the uh, by the Church. A brief summary. Okay, 632. Mohammed started with his expansion in the Arabic Peninsula. The Arabic Peninsula were a multi-religious uh, part of the world. There were Christians, Jews, and the and pagans. Mecca was a pagan uh, city. Uh, Mohammed conquered the, Arab uh, the Arabic Peninsula, destroyed all other uh, faiths and their political 
possibility to articulate. After that, and in that time, uh, the Byzantine Empire was in, at war with the Sassanid Empire, that's Persia. Both were very weak. And after the death of Mohammed, they attacked both empires and conquered the Persian Empire, conquered Egypt, conquered the Middle East, with exception of Byz uh, the Byzantine Empire, what's now Turkey. And after that, war. War in the south of Europe, war in, in North Africa. All these places were Christians. And they all fell. We lost three major centers of Christianity. Jerusalem, Antioquia, and Alexandria. But don't and we had, forget Damascus. And, of course, Damascus uh, too. This was, this was the worst, the worst uh, experience ever a civilization had, and they were stopped in their first attack, thanks to Genghis Khan. We have to say to the Mongols, thank you very much, because they attacked. <laughs> yes, they attacked the Caliphate in, uh, in uh, Baghdad and destroyed it. Destroyed Baghdad, and gave us a little air to breathe. And after that one, war again until 19, 1916. It's not so far away. It's 100 years ago, the massacre of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. And now the destruction of the whole Christianity, even what's left in the, in the Middle East, partly supported by the United States and the Western world that are supporting Islamic, uh, Islamist uh, groups in Syria, for example. For 60 years ago, 80% of the people living in Bethlehem were Christians. Now they're 8%. So that's the reality of living in a country that is ruled by Muslims. And we have to know what will happen to us when we lose. And we're outnumbered, right? When we lose and when we become a minority. You know, in every instance that I can think of where where people, European peoples become a minority, they suffer every single time. I have yet to see a situation in which Europeans are a minority in which they do not suffer. So, uh, in particular, in recent times. So, well, I, I wanted to say real quick, that um, it's been it was an honor to have Dr. Bill Warner on. Uh, thank you, Johannes, for coming on. You've you've been a guest My in pleasure. the past. Thank we you. appreciate it. And uh, Eli, I, I wanted to say thank you as well. You've been a guest in the past, and and one of both of you have been on two of our our best episodes. Um, and uh, so it was great to have you guys back on again and talk with you. And of course, David, you know you're on with me. Pretty, we're on together pretty much every episode. <laughs> And, uh, you know, uh, I just want everybody to understand that this episode, which is a really, really good episode, we, I, I owe it to David completely. Uh, not only was the topic David's choice, but uh, David is the person that brought uh, Dr. Bill Warner on, as well as Johannes and Eli. So um, it's been a great episode. So just wanted to say thanks yeah. to you, David. All right. <laughs> All right, um, guys. I, I, well, I wanted to throw ahead, out there one thing. Um, Charles Martel uh, saved Europe. <laughs> Charles Martel. Well, that's right. And they should have listened to Enoch Powell. 
They right? should. They should. All right, gentlemen. Rivers of Rivers of Blood Rip. speech. Look for that. Rivers of Blood. Yep. Well, gentlemen, thanks for a great show. I hope everybody has a great night, and we will be back tomorrow night for another episode. And uh, take care, everybody. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, Have a good one as well. Well, Thank you for having me. Bye-bye.